Hey, thanks for being here this morning. Um, if you're new to ANC or maybe this is the first time, um, yeah, kudos to you big time for visiting any church for the first time. It's just really super weird to do that, and I know it's painful. And so we hope it's not that painful to be here this morning, and we want you to know that we value your presence and that we consider it an honor that you said that you'll give this time to us this morning. And so for those of you who come here every week, it's great to see you. Um, it's good to be back. Um, I've been on the road a little bit, and I first had surgery on my back, so I was out. And then what everyone does after they have spinal fusion surgery, I went on a 3,000-mile motorcycle ride and uh, with the release of, of a book I wrote, and then have just been back. And so it's an honor, honor to be here. I've been listening online to all the sermons, it's an honor to teach after Jason. He, we find ourselves in the study of the book of the letter, 1 Corinthians, and last week, he found himself in chapter 6 where he taught on, on sexual morality, and so I was glad to not be here <laughs> or have to teach on it, but he, he handled it well. And so if you haven't heard that, I would encourage you to because as we, as we consider this letter that Paul is teaching, he's teaching in order, dealing with very specific things on purpose. He's going somewhere. And that, that message out, out of uh, chapter, what we have put into chapter 6 was... was was the message prior to writing what he wrote on in chapter 7, which is, the subtitle says, Concerning Married Life. So welcome. Glad you're here. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't, I don't know how you, anyone could ever feel worthy to be even a teacher or a pastor. I'm telling you, it's a weird thing to be given the trust or even <clears throat> some kind of strange authority to be able to speak over a group or to help lead a church. It's a very humbling and scary thing. And it's always been something to me that I, I, don't, I, I don't know if anyone ever feels worthy to do that. And I think the same is true and even maybe more so when you have to or get to teach on the idea of marriage. Um, as if there is someone, there's probably someone out there who's perfect on this and they should write books on it. There's a reason I haven't written a book on marriage. Okay. And so, um, and I just wonder sometimes if it's, it's kind of like parenting, like we learn, you know, by seeing and experiencing being a child and then being a parent, you're constantly kind of undoing what wasn't good about what you've experienced and, and maximizing what was good. And it's this constant process of becoming, trying to become a better parent. I think, I think marriage is a similar thing. I think that we have all had different experiences in our lives in which we've grown up in a context in which we have our story, our family story, and it's hard. Um, we want to take the positives out of that and build on that and honor that and learn from that and make that be who we are. But the truth is, is we also are informed by the tough stuff, right? And the tough part of that story. And so we live our lives trying to overcome and we live our lives um, trying to honor and build on who we already are. And I think um, that it makes it tough to talk about and to teach on, on marriage. And so I come to you today humbly saying, I'm sharing with you and learning as we go, all right? And I hope, I'm thankful to be at a church that gives that kind of, of grace. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there are different scriptures on marriage. This is one of the longer ones, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7 actually gives kind of a high level, although it gives a lot. Uh, it gives a bunch of illustrations and stories and examples. There is really a higher truth that I think 
Paul is teaching about marriage that I think we can all grasp today, and I hope that we see. And I would find that true about most scripture. Whenever you see 10 different examples about one thing, it's usually, the example is usually secondary. There's usually a common thread through each of those examples that we could pull back and go, maybe this is God's intent for this whole teaching, right? And so we're going to dig into that a little bit today, and I'm going to teach it upside down. Like, I'm going to read a little bit of the, cha- of the chapter. I'm going to give you my whole point, and at that point, you could choose to check in or out or whatever, and then I'm going to spend some time trying to not prove it, but quantify um, through, the, through what Paul writes. So that's what we're going to do. Let's, so let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read verse 1 through 7 to give us kind of the, the foundation, the platform with where we're going, and we'll pray and then uh, share a few things, and then we'll pick through that scripture, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 1, remembering that we're picking up right where Jason left off. Now, for the matters you wrote about, in quotes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, in quote. There's a bomb. What is he talking about, right? But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. And the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not, we've taken each one of these scriptures and we pulled them out of this story and we've taught each one of these. You've heard, these all seem familiar probably. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, which is what? Single. (laughs) (laughs) But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Let's pray. God, don't let us mess this up. I just pray that you would move, that your spirit would move. You would go beyond any words I can say, that you would take it beyond, that your spirit would move and you would convict us as believers. You were given us the ability to interpret and hear your word. So I just pray that you would move freely, that you would bring us each to the point in which we need to see where we are in you and what your, your desire is here, that we would grow from it, we would be strengthened, that your church would be strengthened, that your kingdom would be strengthened, and that we would see your truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this is kind of tricky. If you keep going through the scripture, it talks about all kinds of things. Um, um, it's always weird when you talk about marriage, for those of you who are here who are single, um, you never want to uh, elevate like this is better than this or whatever. We know it's complicated. It's a strange scenario. It's a strange com- combination or, or co- conversation uh, to have. But I think what's really important, and Paul ends up going there eventually, so I'm going to get way ahead of myself before I get ahead of myself, is that the, the primary thing is still always Paul talks about um, just honoring God. That that's our number one. Our number one thing is honoring God and lifting him up and recognizing our place in this world and the timing of all things. And in fact, he nearly closes out this chapter in verse 28 or 29. It says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, which was the term for believers. He's talking about other believers. Is that time is short. After talking about maybe it's better not to get married or it is to be married or if, you're, if you get divorced, this. If you don't, this. If, you're, if you find yourself, wherever you find yourself in God's, wherever you find yourself, 
he goes on to say this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. He doesn't mean ignore your wives, right? So there's a bigger purpose. Those, but he goes on more illustrations. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who, who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use these things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in his present form is passing away. He's, he's, he's reminding the church in Corinth about the kingdom. And he's reminding the church in Corinth about this real thing that is happening and this real thing that is at stake. Um, not only our eternity, but the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. There's a bigger thing at stake than just that thing in front of us that we seem to be consumed with all the time, right? It's how that then translates to what message that is outside of that as well. Now, the good thing is, is that Paul considered, talked about all these things as gifts, so that we, re, we talk about it, he even used the word concession, I will give you this, that, that God places us in different places as gifts. And we know that marriage is a gift. We know that relationships are gifts because we're not created to live in isolation. So we need to remember those things, not derail and throw all that stuff out as we look at what he's saying. But what he's saying is that all these things are really important, but make sure you still hang it on the hinge that all depends, which is the kingdom and, and who God is and who Jesus is, right? It's the same thing in First John when we read about Jesus being full of life and truth. And all, or I'm sorry, the scripture talking about the, the greatest commands to love God and love your neighbor, that all the other things we do hinge on that truth. So we can do all the right things, but if it's not motivated by the reality that we are to love God and love others, then they fall to the ground. That's what that scripture says. So let's remember that perspective. Okay, so... I wrote on here kind of this transition here, talking about spending this lifetime emulating or overcoming. That we spend so much time learning to exchange behaviors and philosophies. That's what like the Christian life is like this lifelong journey of exchanging things, like exchanging what we have for what he has, exchanging our care for his care, exchanging our desire for his desire, exchanging our will for his will, right? It's like uh, exchanging behaviors and philosophies. And Paul wrote about that. When in Romans 12, when he talked about not conforming to the patterns of the world, but instead to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, that was an exchange of ourself, of our whole self, a living sacrifice. It wasn't just about this issue or this topic or this thing. It was a holistic giving of ourselves that he said we should do. Again, he's speaking to Christians in Rome who were already believers, who were already in the church. They were already saved, but they had not given themselves to God. So this is, we understand this is a process, right? So today I want to look at this scripture, talk about what it says, not what it doesn't say. How many of you guys do Twitter? Just a handful of you. How many characters you get on Twitter? 140. How many of you have said something and someone else critiques you on what you didn't say, not on what you were able to say? You can't say we don't have time to get into all, everything about marriage. Let's talk about what this does say specifically. So in order to faithfully interpret scripture, we talked about this a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, that we have to first start with the context, that this was a letter to a church, individual believers in uh, Corinth, who was struggling with some very specific things. Sexual immorality had gone rampant. And it wasn't just, hey, I think that guy, you know, they, they hooked up. I mean, we were talking, we were talking incest. We were talking socially acceptable rape. We were talking 
um, just open uh, sexual relationships outside of marriage. We were talking, it was wheels off, all right? And so know that this is the context in which this is being written. We also need to look at whenever we look at marriage in, this, in the Bible, um, there are some very intentional scriptures that, well, any scripture in, in the Bible, is this a prescription or is this a description? So we need to come back and look. Many times in the Old Testament, you see scriptures that are more describing what was going on. For example, the Bible talks about Solomon being the wisest man who ever lived. But does anybody know how many wives he had? Right? So that was not contoning or prescribing that a wise man have that many wives. It was describing what was going on, you know, in that context. Now, fortunately, we have the gospel. And I believe, personally, and we've talked about this, that the gospel changes everything. And it wasn't God's plan B. It was his plan to redeem his creation, to restore his creation, to see his love for us, that Jesus would die on the cross, that then we would be invited into this redemptive plan, right? And so as we look at scripture, this side of the cross, or we look into this new covenant scripture, uh, we are able to see the gospel implication of what is going on. There are two major, major scriptures in the New Testament that talks about marriage. The first is in Ephesians 5, which talks specifically about the how, the roles of marriage, the different things like that that we dig into. It's what we usually spend our time talking to, but 1 Corinthians 7 talks more about the what. It's a very extensive passage that talks a lot about the what, but it is more prescriptive, okay? Um, When we look at scripture through the gospel, through this lens, living on this side of grace, the beauty is, is when Jesus came, he was full of grace and truth. And we always struggle with balancing grace and truth, right? We're like, oh, do we apply grace here? Do I apply? But it, it wasn't a balancing act. It was, it, the, the goal is to be full of both. Before we had truth, now we have grace and truth. And so we are in, to interpret and to apply truth through the lens of grace. So we always have to ask, how does this change had Jesus not died on the cross? How does this now change how God views me, my sin? How do I do church now differently because this is a reality? How do I live now because this is a reality? And so this is our constant question as we faithfully interpret Scripture. How do we apply truth to the lens of grace? And the reality is Paul's message over and over and over is pointing the church and his letters to the church, specifically to the church, is that we are invited, you and I are invited into a ministry of reconciliation and that we play a role in the restoration of one another. That is God's plan. That the gospel works in you to save you and change you, and the gospel works through you then to impact his kingdom. The problem is when we as believers are so preoccupied with ourselves and we're so insecure and we, don't, we can't gain confidence that it, everything we do revolves around us and we never shoot out into how it impacts the kingdom. It's why we struggle with being good neighbors. It's why we struggle with finding our ministry and our mission in our workplaces and our schools and our things like that because we're still spiritually, we think about ourselves and we think we have not yet, many times we struggle exchanging that way of viewing everything else, right? With the way maybe the world or the way we might more naturally. So today, not how to have a better, necessarily how to have a better marriage, although I think the key lies somewhere in us understanding God's dream for marriage, Right? And it starts in the understanding of God's dream for how we simply live among one another. All right? I'll dig into this. The, the last thing that I want to talk about how we faithfully interpret Scripture, we talked about this, this idea of legislative intent. You remember what legislative intent is if you're talking about legal terms? Who knows what that is? Legislative intent is what? Somebody say it. 
what, what the lawmakers meant by the law, the heart of the law, the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, but the heart of the law. So we want to look at God's intent. There's a book, I think it's called The Pastor in the Pulpit. It was written like in 1908, and it's a really weird book to read. It's a little tiny book like this, but it talks about the law that kills. And his point is the law, when it's taught not through the lens of grace, does not lead to the restoration and redemption. It only leads to guilt. It leads to shame. It leads to false condemnation, all of these things. And so we want to look at God's, his dream for these relationships. Hebrews 10 sums it up. It says, because of Christ's sacrifice, it tells us three things. Therefore, we will draw near to God. We should hold, hope, we should hold to hope. And we should increasingly encourage one another. Really, our marching orders where, where many of the things are summed up. We should draw near to God. We should hold close to hope. And we should increasingly encourage one another. Verse uh, 24 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So it says, let us think about it. Let's put some effort into this. Not giving up meaning together as some in the habit of doing, but instead encouraging one another. And here, here's how. And all the more as you see the day approaching. It seems clear as we see all these verses that we've heard and, 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 and read and studied individually together, there's a common theme there. Do you see it? Of the gospel working in us and then the gospel working through us for the kingdom that Jesus died for here on earth as it is in heaven. One day we'll see in heaven, right? So as I think about this very clear marching orders, because of Christ, draw near to God, hold to hope, encourage one, increasingly it says, all the more, as you see the day approaching, encouraging one another. Then I look at the gospel implications, right? Christ, how do we do this? Christ's example gave himself wholly and completely to the bride, to the church, to the point of death. He, the scripture says he considered equality with God not something to be grasped. He sacrificed all of that, be put on flesh, became man, walked among us, for 30 some odd years, God incarnate had to eat, sleep, experience pain, suffering. He lived among us sinless, right? And he increasingly gave himself to mankind all the way to the point of death, to everything he was. That's what he did. And the story to describe that is that he is the, he is the groom and the church is his bride. Many times we think that he uses marriage to describe that relationship. I think it's the opposite. I think there's this thing that's beautiful that Jesus did for us, that marriage is the gift that reflects him and who he is, okay? I would propose, here's my hypothesis that I hope we can look at and prove. What, does that say 10 after 11? Ooh, that was my intro. <laughs> Maybe this is two-part. Am I here next week? Um, no, it's, it's faster, I promise. This was the slowest part. Now it is. <laughs> I would propose this. Here, here's really the point. I'm giving you the points up front, and we'll look through as much scripture as we can to go there. You can read it on your own if we, if we don't have the time. I would propose that marriage is the greatest discipleship relationship ever dreamed up by God. Let me say that again. I believe that marriage is the greatest discipleship-making relationship ever dreamed up 
When I think about discipleship, I mean sharpening, sanctifying. It's like a, this lifelong commitment, right, to one another. That God's dream for marriage is for two individual people to make a lifelong commitment who continuously and consistently learn to give themselves wholly and completely to one other person, as Christ did the church. So, this theory introduces a few foundational questions I think we have to answer. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? It's like, you can have a a dude-dude relationship of of discipleship and accountability, and you study the Bible together, and you come together at Starbucks every every Tuesday, and you could sharpen one another and do that, and it sharpens you, but it it doesn't replace what God is doing in us in a marriage with another person where we are committed to them for lifelong, giving ourselves wholly to them, right? So what does it mean, let's back up, what does it mean to completely give ourselves to another person? What are the implications? What does it mean if you're giving, how would you describe that? Huh? Serving that other person, right? What else? Huh? Well, you're not supposed to be selfish. You can, Right? Okay. Selflessness, service. What, how else would you define it? Vulnerability. Being vulnerable, honest. Okay, what else? Is that it? Enduring. Enduring together. Wow. Wow, right? That might be, when you say lifelong, that might be the greatest dream, isn't it? To, to maintain, to keep hope to fight for that, if, you know, what else? To compromise, which is choosing the other person, right? Or the choosing the other way, among other things. I don't want to minimize that answer. What else? Trust. Trust. Good. What else? Intimacy. Huh? Intimacy. Intimacy. So even physically, right? Intimacy, emotional intimacy, all of these things. What else? Huh? Forgiveness, covering shame. Would you say to be an advocate for that person, that Christ? But did Christ really do that for us? Right. So we'll move forward. There's so many different things, right? Um, we have taught from the beginning of ANC that we believe there are three kinds of need in every community: spiritual, physical, emotional, or relational. I believe it's the same in this. I, I think that we, we are to learn how to increasingly give ourselves physically, emotionally, and spiritually to this other person, right? And so, so I don't know how that works in balancing it out. I, I think that there's a point in which we can substitute another person, even emotionally, as a friend to take the place of what should happen in our marriage, even spiritually, I think there's a place. That doesn't mean that shouldn't exist there and it shouldn't be whole, but I think this has to be increasing. And I have to admit there are times where I struggle with that the most, where I just kind of go, well, here's where I am, and, and I lack the effort. I lack making the effort to work with where I'm not and to be increasing, increasingly giving myself or increasingly learning wherever I am instead of looking at the others, where I am and where I need to be increasing. So let's flip, let's flip that equation then. What can we, what ways do we withhold those things? Does that make sense what I'm asking? Talk about how we give ourselves, what ways do we not? I guess the same ways, huh? We withhold ourselves emotionally. 
we withhold physically, we withhold even spiritually, sometimes willingly, sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. I think, I think this goes beyond just emotional and the secret stuff. I think this also goes into advocating for that person's calling, for them to shine before God and see who they are and be their greatest champion. For them professionally, for them in every single way, we in that relationship is where that happens. What is the impact of not doing those things? Maybe that's rhetorical, right? Let me look at the scripture real quick. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So it's talking about sexual immorality, but since it's running rampant, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Now we can easily make this about the sex itself. And that is the context. But I think it's very important for us to look at what these words really are. When it talks about um, the, the phrase, should have relations with his own, that phrase with his own is singular and possessive. It means to hold. The, the emphasis is not the, the other person. The emphasis is on the person who is cherishing and valuing that person. Okay? In that scripture. And the husband the same. And it says the husband should fulfill his marital duty. That word fulfill literally means to give up, to return, or to restore. His marital duty, the word marital duty there is actually the word debt. So there is something owed to that other person that our role is to Play a role of reconciliation to that person to be a part of their restoration, spiritually, emotionally, physically, right? It's not just about what Jason talked about last week. It's about this bigger thing that is going on. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do you see the exchange? It's the same exchange Paul talked about in Romans 12. It's the same exchange that Christ gave us as the example. Ephesians 5 put it this way. For husbands, this means love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave his life up for her. Verse 8, do not deprive. The word deprive means defraud. Do not deprive. Not just, this word doesn't just mean, oh, I didn't give you that. I'm sorry. It, it means defraud. Like you represented, you were supposed to represent this to me. You said you would, and you didn't. There's a, there's a deeper connotation here. Each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Obviously, this is, again, the example is physical. I say this as a concession. The word means permission. I say this as giving permission, not as a command. I wish, and he's very clear to say what I wish and what God's saying. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And so the implications again are be gone. We are to be, is it possible, he's saying we are to be fully committed to one another, that it takes even a deliberate sabbatical to be devoted to a time of prayer? That God honors our relationship so much with one another as a part of our relationship to him 
that he does not see it as competing with our relationship with him, but fulfilling our relationship with him. Is that possible? I think about that like parenting. Gavin's been gone at college. He came home this weekend. It was cool. He came, Jen's been gone this weekend, came home last night. And when he came in, there was a pretty cool hug. And they sat on the couch and they snuggled together and, and whatever. And I looked at that and I was, her husband was not threatened by that at all. Now, if another dude came in that she hadn't seen in a while, I might get a little defensive, right? It might strike me as something. God sees the marriage not as a competing thing with him, but as a fulfillment of defining. My family is part of defining my marriage, right? Uh, In fact, there's scripture that talks about the idea of kinship and what God is doing, not just in the marriage, but in the family environment, okay? Oh, that makes sense. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. It goes on to say that. And it says to remain, okay? It's talking about this idea of remaining. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. No doubt, Paul was wise enough in his leadership to not think those who were unmarried had no hope for this kind of relationship. Let's be clear that marriage does not trump a focused relationship with God. It's simply a a pure and beautiful reflection of Christ's example of his love for the church that gives us a helpmate. We know that scripture from the early Old Testament. Verse 10 To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. Now, we have separate. It is important to know. The NIV is a translation. It's not a transliteration of the Bible, okay? The word separate, while has a connotation, we think separate, we talk a legal separation, but this is talking deeper than that. The word means to withdraw in this context, okay? But if she does, she she must remain unmarried to or else be reconciled to her husband, and her husband must not divorce. The word is to, to, to send away or to mit. Why? Knowing what we've been talking about, why, does the, why, why should this not happen? Why is this not best? Scripture talks about God hating divorce. Uh, is it possible that it's more than just let your yes be yes? Because I think, I mean, there's a big part about that. The Bible talks about not making a covenant and breaking it. It's better not to make it, right? Well, that's true, right? But why is, why does he hate it? Answer that. Based on what we're talking about. Maybe again, that's rhetorical. I think it it simply goes against this pre-established teaching on God's desire for how we relate with for one another, what he's doing in that relationship, in that most beautiful discipling relationship. It's the opposite of restoration, right? It's destructive. This scripture, I want to get to another, another place. It, it goes on to talk about the significance of a lifelong commitment, not just partial and our intent there, and how we are sanctified by those relationships. And it's really even interesting, there's scripture that we translate husband and wife that really is brother or sister. The emphasis is on our spiritual connection there as much as it is um, anything. Okay, talks about divorce a little bit more. Um, Then we'll close with this. Verse 17, it says, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them. Just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. 
Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. I think in order to do that, it requires us understanding where God has called us. It requires us thinking about and understanding where God has placed us. And knowing the difference between whether or not God has brought us there or our decisions sometimes has brought us there. And it requires a true belief in in understanding our redemptive role with one another, that we're not just partake partaking in relationships, that we truly have a role with others. It goes on, verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Again, a specific storyline moving towards something else that I want to encourage you as we, as we close out our time. We always, we always give advice to our kids when we talk about friendships, and it's a very general thing, and my kids are rolling their eyes. But to just, I think it's a good rule, even as adults, is be the friend you want to have, right? If, you're just, if, you're, if you be the friend you want to have, you, the odds of you getting that back is huge, much better. Here's what I would encourage us to do. We're gonna close, we're gonna, we always close with a little more worship. We close taking communion together to remember what this is all about and that Jesus said he came, not for the righteous, but for sinners, that we have so much work to do, but he, he commissions us. He's the one that heals us and, and commissions us and, and moves us forward. I always think about the story of Moses when he ran and God was calling him back and we saw this burning bush and he approached this burning bush and, and God said, I want you to stop And do you remember what he told him to do first before he did anything else? What? Yeah, he told him to take off his shoes. It was like he was saying, hey, stop. I want you to stop for a second and look at your feet. I want you to take off your shoes and recognize something. You're standing on holy ground. And I think the beautiful thing about that is that we have to take a moment to stop and look at where we're standing, where we are. But our feet also tell us the direction we're going, we're headed. And my prayer is as we consider these things specifically on how are we increasingly giving ourselves or learning to give ourselves more and more to the person we've made a commitment to do life with? Is it possible some of the things we're wrestling with and everything could be helped if we were to do that? If we have neglected thinking of it in that way, I've never been taught to think about it in that way. And I think it will be a game changer. It should be a game changer. My call to you as we consider that Jesus levels Everything at the foot of the cross. As we take communion, as we worship, as we pray, as we do, as we close this out, thinking about him, not just us, that he's the one that empowers us. Will you ask, simply ask God, God, where am I in these things? And where am I headed? And to help me turn, help me point it in the right direction to start moving forward. But help me understand, help me understand where I am, where I withhold these things, where I do not do. Because the beauty of this relationship is, is we get to change us not the other person. We get to focus on us because we view marriage in that, in that way. And we can join together in moving forward together, healthier together, marriages together, church family together, the kingdom together, okay? Hey, Mac, I'm coming back on this. Why don't you all have a seat for just a moment, if you would.
And Trey, we can bring the lights back up. If you didn't have an opportunity to take communion yet, I'm sorry. They'll, they'll still be here or something. I want to I hit something. I want to come back to something just real quick because I think because of the time I rushed it and it didn't get there. And I just want to make sure I go here. There are many people who are impacted by divorce, right? Some of you sitting here today are in second marriages or, or whatever. And, you know, a lot of times we hear the scriptures that we read and it just sounds so full of condemnation and no hope. And I hope, I, I don't think that's what God wants us to hear out of that. And I hope you hear that. I hope you hear that we can acknowledge that God's, God's dream, his plan A is not for anyone to have to go through that. Because if you've been through it, you know it's the most, probably the most painful thing you've ever done for everyone involved, right? And so, but there, it's not God's, I don't think, I, feel, I wonder if any of us are living in God's perfect will, right? His permissive will or definitely his redemptive will. So that we all have hope. We all have forgiveness. We all have his plan for what's next. I think the key is, and he even says it in the scripture, he says, whatever situation you find yourself in, be a believer in that, moment, in that situation, that God can restore and God redeems, and that wherever you find yourself now, whatever scenario that is, that you would fully commit that to God, and that you would seek his dream for that. And if it's an intimate relationship, that, that God's desire for that is not to be flippant, that it's meant to be long-term committed holy giving of yourself. And so I know, I can only imagine if, if you've been through a divorce or you're in a new situation that that's not your dream. I, I can't imagine that's not your dream for where you are now. I think the, let, the message is, and I hope we all hear it and are reminded of it, that, that God is with you in that and that he's for you, okay? That there's redemption, there's restoration, there's, we all have forgiveness because we're all living in God's permissive and his redemptive will. And so I hated that we didn't have the time or that, you know, I, I kind of jumped through that part. It's poor plan on my part, so forgive me for that. But I hope you hear my heart and I hope you're more encouraged by that and that, that, that I felt like that was not, a, not the way. I don't think I represented that well. And so I hope you hear that, okay? And that you, I hope you'll receive that, all right?